Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we are really down to it now. We are headed into the final weekend of the 2022 midterm elections. Uh, And, of course, uh, Election Day comes up next Tuesday, one of the most consequential elections in a very long time. Of course, we say that nowadays in virtually every election cycle because each of them is, in many ways, the most important election of its time. Um, We're going to get into that in a little while in the show. I very quickly want to give a shout-out to those of you in the Atlanta area who were um, at the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival last night for my conversation with John Meacham about his new book on Abraham Lincoln. It was a, an extraordinary crowd. We had over 600 people who came to hear what Meacham had to say about Lincoln. And I'm really thankful that so many of you uh, were there and told us you listened to Political Rewind uh, regularly. All right, let's get right down to today's show Um, As I said in the very beginning of the show, um, the focus of this election swings dramatically on next Tuesday from the candidates and their campaigns to the people who are counting the votes, the perhaps most crucial part of the entire election process. In just a moment, I'll introduce our special guest for the show, uh, Gabriel Sterling, the Deputy Secretary of State. But let me bring in our uh, journalist uh, Jim Galloway is back with me, as he is on many Fridays. Jim, it's finally getting here. Yeah, yeah, but it's not 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 soon enough. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. And we're really glad that um, we have Matthew Brown back with us. Matthew, Matt, you know, this is, it seems to me, as the, one of the democracy reporters for the Washington Post, this is really your time. What's more important to democracy than election days and accurate counts of the vote? Yeah, we, we say that what happens before the election is always politics, but but what happens after the election is is the democracy questions. And that's what we're especially going to be paying attention to as, as election day really comes through. Well, I look forward to you, Matt, and you, Jim, joining me and talking with uh, Gabriel Sterling. Gabe, Gabe Sterling is the Deputy Secretary of State. Um, people got to know him pretty well in 2020, because we we know that we took a long time to get the votes counted, Gabe Sterling came out and was often the spokesperson for the Secretary of State's office in talking about how the election was unfolding. But he was also, as we'll visit with him at some point in this show, one of the first to issue a stern warning about what happens when deniers, election conspiracy theorists, begin to spin lies about um, fraud among election workers trying to throw the election to Joe Biden. Um, Gabe Sterling, you have become a pretty ubiquitous figure at election time in Georgia, and I'm awfully glad you could be with us today. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm glad I'm a University of Georgia graduate, and I almost know what ubiquitous means. So, (laughs) (laughs) All right, let me start by uh, asking you. Uh, It looks to me like what? We have had some two point what two million early votes cast as of today when when the final day of uh, of uh, early voting is often the biggest day have i got those numbers about right it's 2.261 of early in person and absentee accepted they're combined we have had over 2.054 million early in person votes cast so we had about 70,000 more give or take absentees that can still come in by next tuesday and today like you point out it's historically always the biggest day, so we anticipate at least over 200,000 today, but I'll give one caveat to that. What we saw in this election cycle is we've had early voting for so long now. People have kind of figured out, maybe I shouldn't go on the first day and the last day. Maybe I should do those days in the middle, because we had a lot higher turnout early on and sort of evened out some, but we still anticipate breaking 200,000 today. Um, how, t- tell us, you know, we now have, we know that SB202 expanded uh, weekend uh, voting. Um, h- how did those additional weekend days work out uh, in terms of voter turnout? Um, Saturdays worked out really, really well. I mean, I think we had 91,000 one Saturday and 88,000 the other. 
Sundays are by the county's choice, but I will say this, counties that covered nearly 55% of the registered voters in the state had Sunday voting, either both days or one Sunday. And those are, even when we had broader Sundays like in 2020, those were always the lowest days. Um, so it, it worked, and I think it gives everybody who needs it the available options, and that's what Secretary Raffensperger tried to do when we were working with SB202 of the legislatures, like give everybody the option that works best for them. We have three ways of voting in this state, the no-excuse absentee, early in person, and election day. And all of them have been very successful this time. We have one more test. That's going to be on Tuesday. And it'll be the first time we've had a non-COVID election in person with, that, with our brand-new paper ballot voting system. So we had 975,000 show up in 2020. We expect at least double that this time, if not more. So it'll be a test for our, our counties and our poll workers, but we feel like and they feel like they're going to be up for the challenge. Jim and then Matt, let me uh, give you a chance to ask uh, some questions here, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, Gabe, we've got uh, – uh, there's been ongoing problems in certain counties, and I'm wondering, have there been any trouble spots so far? Uh, how is Fulton County doing? And and, and just to add on to that, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, the Carter Center said it was going to be doing some poll watching in Fulton County. Uh, on on Tuesday, have have, have you uh, had any, any interaction with them? Um, two things. You said there's ongoing problems in counties. There simply aren't. I mean, I've been knocking on wood every morning. We don't really have any problems in any counties. Is there normal things that happens when you have 159 counties and 2.2 million people casting votes and thousands of volunteers or, or temporary workers occasionally? But really, it has been smooth as I as, as can be. I'm, I'm terrified to talk about it on the last day. Um, so. But on the Carter Center thing, what you're referring to specifically there is we have two different things that are happening. The Carter Center has done an MOU with the um, uh, Performance Review Board, which is a, a standalone entity under the state election board reviewing Fulton County and how they, how they do their elections, given the difficulties they had in the June primary and the November election of 2020. And they have, I think, about a little over 100 uh, monitors, all Georgians or Americans or employees of the Carter Center going around to all – at 270, I think, polling locations in Fulton, just to keep an eye on that. And that's part of the performance review board. They're there just to make, see how things are operating. They're not, they're not going to interfere with anything. They're just there to take notes and give it over to the performance review board. Secondarily, we have a deal with the Carter Center to review our audits and how we run those in the state in all 109 counties, or at least in a, in a big chunk of those, to make sure that our, our systems used for our risk-limiting audit are done so people can have faith in the outcomes of that and counting our hand-marked hand paper ballots and our BMD marked ballots. Matt, you want to jump in? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being here, Gabe. I'm interested yeah. in how you – in um, voter protection that you all are doing on the front end and on the back end. So, so what steps has the Secretary of State taken so far to prevent um, voter intimidation and make sure that people have access to the ballot on the front end? Mm -hmm. And then what steps have been taken since, for instance, um, the, the incidents in Coffee County to make sure that um, people are not behind the scenes um, taking steps to damage um, Georgia's elections? Well, on the front end – there's a few things that I'm not going to get too detailed on, but we're taking steps, especially when it comes to high-risk potential locations. We're working with local law enforcement. And again, I don't go too deep into it because then people take that as a challenge. So I don't want to necessarily say we're doing this and this here or there. But we, in our Elections Operations Center, we're going to have resources with the GBI, Georgia State Patrol, National Guard, and those kind of things. Secondarily, a little more mundane, we're going to have Georgia Power, the EMCs, the railroads, Atlanta Gaslight, because as an example, in, in 2020, there was a re NDOT, there was a wreck in um, Waycross in Ware County. That's where the Okefenokee Swamp is. It blocked the main roads. So people had to go 45 minutes around to drive to get to those things. For the poll workers, the secretary has launched a new um, a thing that it's a Secretary Raffensperger's poll worker first response texting tool, which essentially – we, we don't mandate it because we can't direct counties to do things, but we allow them to opt in. And so far, 85 counties have opted in. It lets the poll managers text in specific information about potential threats, anything from like a poll watcher who's getting a little out of hand up to somebody's got a gun in the, in the, in the parking lot. And that will um, uh, then go to our elections operations center, their elections director, and if they opt in, to their local law enforcement for a quick response with real-time data that's thorough. Matt, you're welcome to follow up. 
Yeah, but so that, that's definitely some interesting programs that you guys have been doing. What are the steps that you all believe are most important for voters to be taking this year, just in, in the run-up to Election Day, to, to make sure that their ballot is going to be counted and that they have all the information that they need just about how the election is actually being run in their county? The biggest thing is this is fully a responsibility of voters in Georgia. They can go to mvp.sos.ga.gov, check on their voter registration, look at their sample ballot. The Secretary of Raffensperger launched a new sample ballot where you can go and mark it on there, print it off, and take it with you to the polls. Do your research. Know what you're going to do. Make a plan for what time of day you're going to go. Map out how you drive there. Um, all of these things are important, but they're up to you to protect that vote. Now, if you get there after 5 o'clock and they say you're at the wrong precinct, you can still vote a provisional ballot there. Before then, you need to find time, You need to make sure you're going to the right place because one of the things that there's been some criticisms of is the provisional ballot rules in the Election Integrity Act. The reality was partisan actors were making people go and disenfranchise themselves on large parts of the ballot because their votes would count in the county if they were on the statewide stuff, but they were losing votes on their county commission, their school boards, their state reps, their state senators. So before 5 o'clock, we're telling people they have to go back to their location. So the main thing is find your location, get a plan, map it out, and then that way you can be sure to protect your ballot. The main thing, take your ID. We're still a voter ID state and have been for two decades. So most people in Georgia know that. And over 98% of Georgians have a driver's license attached to their um, voter registration. So we're in really good shape on that front. Hey, hey Gabe, yep. hey, Gabe uh, one of the big changes between uh, uh, this cycle and the previous cycle is, of course, the use of uh, drop boxes. Uh, SB 202 uh, uh, really put a cap on on, on those. What are the, what are the numbers that of 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 how is how is drop box use changed between uh, 2020 and and 2022? In terms of volume, in terms of volume, we don't yeah. we don't know that yet. We will get that probably as as part of our post election reconciliations items. But overall, absentee ballot use has fallen back to what we traditionally see. It's still at a record um, here in Georgia for a midterm election, and it's really hard to compare 2022 to 2020 because we had so many COVID rules in place before 2022. They were not in the law in Georgia. The Election Integrity Act made them legal. And they also mandated them in every county. I think there was 26 counties that didn't have any drop boxes at all. They put them inside the locations so you don't have to worry about the video cameras and stuff like that. And I know it's not perfect for some people. It's maybe not the way I would have written the law, but there were people who wanted to eliminate them 100%. And this is kind of how democracy works. Republics work. You have to have a compromise, and that's, that's how we got to where we got, where there's 100, 000, one per 100,000 in an inside and early voting location. Matt? And Gabe, a lot of the policies that were actually in SB 202 affected how counties administer their elections. Have you, have you seen counties adapt to that in any certain ways, or for instance, when it comes to everything from um, the times of audits that need to happen to, to the type of paper that they even use for, for ballots and everything? What, how, what have counties um, given you feedback on that? Have, have those been burdens, cumbersome, burdensome? Have they been um, fine? What's been their perspective? There really hasn't been that much to change on them. The paper was already security paper for just nearly everything. This is mandated for absentee ballots, which basically affected the printers more than affected the counties. Then um, the biggest thing that we're seeing is the allowing of uh, pre-processing of absentee ballots. And then one thing they clarified in the Election Integrity Act was that on 7 a.m. on election morning, if you give notice as a county, you can begin tabulating your absentee ballots and your early vote ballots. And that should give us to a point where we should, we should ho hopefully get 715, 730, 745, 8 o'clock, even some of the big counties with those vote totals coming in. I, I want to talk about the quicker vote that we're anticipating in just a moment. But before we do, Gabe, I do want to go back to SB 202 because um, you just the very name of it, the Election Integrity Act, which you've mentioned several times on the show, I think it's important to remind our listeners there was no reason to doubt the integrity of elections before uh, 2020 happened. But this act, we know, was a reaction in many ways by Republicans to uh, losses in the 2020 election. You've pointed out some, and we have on the show, some of the positive aspects of SB 202, expanded weekend voting and that sort of thing. At the same time, absentee voting has plunged this cycle um, uh, because of the more uh, restrictive requirements that are involved in getting an absentee ballot. And, and I wonder whether you feel that uh, 
that fewer absentee voters are, is going to in some ways affect a certain segment of our voting population that isn't going to end up casting ballots. Okay, I fundamentally disagree with your characterization that it's harder to get an absentee ballot. It simply isn't. In fact, it's easier now than it was in the last midterm. We can't compare the rules we use now for what was used in the middle of COVID. We, you just can't. Um, go, going to a ID-based system versus signature match, you've got to remember the Democrats sued Secretary Raffensperger to get rid of signature match. So what did we do in SB202? We got rid of signature match, but we had to do something, so we did what Minnesota did and used the driver's license number. And in Georgia, it's great because we have automatic voter registration, so literally over 98% of our people already have that on there. So it's really not harder to, to get one now, and everybody keeps saying that, but it's really fundamentally not. Um, and also, we have cure periods now for absentee ballots, so it's a lot easier. And we're going to have a record number of absentee ballots used in the midterm. So, and Georgians, historically, like voting in person. We're going to have record turnout in this election. And what I don't care whether you vote absentee, early vote, or on election day. Here's the thing about SB202. There was going to be an election reform bill, regardless of who won this race, because of two big reasons. One, we did learn a lot from doing COVID. And two, it was the first year in 20 that we used a paper-based system for elections. There was going to be a bill. Our office wrote 95% of that bill. I can guarantee we didn't write parts of it. Little things like taking Secretary Raffensperger out as the SEB chairman. That was pure political you know, payback. We get that. But the vast majority of this bill is really about helping the counties and the voters and election administration. Another example of that is people have attacked us for having an absentee ballot deadline. What we discovered from the 2020 election is if you requested about 10 or more days before the election, 92 percent of those were voted. Within 10 days, only 56 percent. This is about protecting people's franchise. But people want to demonize it and attack it. And I'm really tired of, of both Republicans and Democrats weaponizing election administration this way. These people are trying to do a really good job to give the voters a really good experience. And that's what it comes down to. And I'll put my Republican hat on. It's a little bit different. We want to win with the most voters out there and have our arguments and ideas and values win and not try to rig the system so that people can't vote. I just don't believe in that. And that's the way we approach in our office. All right. I th- thank you. Uh, I don't really, and I, I, I probably opened the door for relitigating uh, SB uh, 202. And, and obviously you, you are a, a Republican. Our goal today is to talk to you in your role as Deputy Secretary of State as much as possible. So with that in mind, talk to us about the uh, um, measures that are being put in place to get a quick turnaround on votes, because clearly that was one of the biggest uh, uh, vulnerabilities in 2020 for election deniers to claim fraud in the election, the delay in getting votes processed. What do you have in place and how is it going to help? Well, the biggest thing is these large counties, almost all of them have Notice they're going to do early tabulation, as I pointed out before, which means that hopefully by 8 o'clock we'll be seeing a lot of those early and absentee numbers coming in. Secondarily, as you pointed out, absentee ballots usage has fallen a lot. So we're not going to have, you know, tens of thousands of ballots coming in on the Tuesday election. Is there going to be some? Yes. And are there going to be the same three buckets of votes we always have that are allowed through Friday? Curing of absentees, uh, verifying provisionals. And then the military and overseas, their postmark by Tuesday can be received by Friday. The issue we have is we counted our votes much faster than many other states, New York, Florida, those states. We were done way before them, but their margins were so wide it didn't matter. For some reason, the number 11,779 sticks in my head, but that's a really close election, so every, every vote counts. <laughs> <laughs> Jim. Yeah, yeah, Gabe. Okay, to to to, to go back to to some of the more infamous moments in in, in 2020, uh, we had we had that uh, we had we had a couple incidents where uh, uh, poll watchers and I'll put those in quotes uh, were were casting aspersions on election workers. Uh, you had the the instance where where of course that the 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 tape of. Uh, the video of, of of election workers in Fulton County uh, shutting down and then opening up was was kind of used by Rudy Giuliani to to suggest that there was there was uh, the vote packing there. What what's been what has been done to uh, rein in poll the the, the poll watchers uh, to just to to at least make sure that they they, they uh, that, that the interaction between them and and poll poll election workers. Uh, is, isn't quite as strained as it was. Well, one of the big things that we've done is in SB202, we, now the parties have to certify that their people have been trained. One of the big problems we had in 2020 was 
people were watching things, they had no idea what the hell they were looking at. <laughs> so they're thinking things are weird and untoward, but they're normal. So we've, we've, they certified those. Another thing is we've talked to both parties and said, look, don't let your guys be jerks. I may not have used the word jerk. I might use them a little harsher than that because that's what it comes down to. You've got to be having a set report in. In fact, right now I'm getting a call from one of the election. I'm uh, watching from the parties, parties on one of my other phones right now. We've told them, don't be jerks. Don't get in the way of the system. That's only going to exacerbate problems. And I do I think the leadership of both parties have kind of tried to tamp down on that. Are there going to be individuals who are a little zealous? I guarantee it. But we've told our poll managers well, to work on, work on de-escalation. But, Matt, we, we also know, uh, and the Washington Post has reported on it, that um, Republicans have been training a battalion of poll watchers to go out there who very well could be gumming up the works. And I'm not sure that's going to happen here in Georgia. We have no way of knowing. But we know that some of the poll watchers could be weaponized, and there's reasons, Matt, to be a little bit concerned about how that might play out. Well, yes, and I've I've received reports of scattered instances of this. I do want to I do want to say that I think probably Gabe would agree that that most that the vast majority of Georgia voters have had an easy experience voting. My my mm-hmm. question would be on what are some ways that when it comes to certain policies in SB 202, for instance, voter challenges that we've seen a lot of discussion um, with this year. What what are some of those those policies that that are in SB 202 that that you all have seen, do you, do you think that they're having an effect or have had any effect on people turnout and voting and everything? Um, because we, we have seen, you know, as I said, very, very scattered instances of, of poll watchers having issues at polls, but those seem to have been resolved fairly quickly. Gabe, what is your perspective on um, these voter challenges that have been going on, especially in the metro Atlanta counties of voters? Is that something that the, the Secretary of State's office is monitoring? Is that something that you all are concerned about? Do you think it's fine? What's your perspective? Well, the challenges have literally been in law for a couple of decades, and they were always unlimited. But now I think they are being weaponized. And one of the things Secretary Raffensperger has said is that we need to look at reforming it and giving some windows of time because they don't, we don't need county workers researching these things when they're in the middle of trying to run an election. That does gum up the works, and that is weaponizing it in a bad way. Um, but I, and I don't know what limiting it is either because the main thing we want to make sure of is we don't want these things to be weaponized in a way that – hurts the ability for people to vote, and hurts the ability for elections to be administered. Of the 85,000 Mark Elias talked about and the 65,000 in, um, uh, in the paper here in Atlanta, we're down to like 3,200 statewide. Um, so far, I'm aware of three or four instances. I think some people think it's four, but I think it's the same person twice, where somebody hasn't been able to quote-unquote vote. But they've, they've been allowed to vote provisionally, and one chose not to. Um, so... We're really talking about things in the margin, which are important when you have a close state like this, but the, these are rules that, are, that can be tweaked so that you can have clean voter lists and the right people voting. Like I challenged a person who voted from my house where I'm sitting right now because they illegally voted in a districted race after I bought my house two years later. I mean, there's a legit, there should be a legitimate way to challenge those things. Some of these mass things using national change of address, the single thing, I don't think that's enough to rise to that level, but be bipartisan. Elections boards meted those out, and so there's 3,200 out of these 65,000 that have some level where we think this needs to be reviewed one more time. And that seems legitimate to me, and it hasn't really stopped anybody. But raising the alarm bells and saying a house is on fire can scare people and depress vote, and that's what I don't want to see happen. Gabe, um, we only have a few minutes left with you, but, but I want to go back to 2020 and 2021 with you for a couple of minutes, because as the conspiracy theories proliferated after the 2020 election, um, in many ways, uh, uh, Donald Trump was the biggest promoter of those conspiracy theories. We saw harassment of some of the people who were working at polling places, one very uh, uh, specific example, a young man in Gwinnett County falsely accused of trying to somehow rig the vote up there. And, and um, other instances, Ruby Freeman, Shea Moss, who testified at the January 6th committee talking about the harassment they received after Giuliani and Trump called them out for Fulton County uh, rigging of the ballots. But you became, I think, a, one of the first people to speak out very strongly about your concerns about where all of this could lead. And I want to replay what became a, uh, a, a very uh, uh, famous uh, uh, soundbite in national news the day that you really spoke out about this. And then let's talk about it on the other side. It has all gone too 
bar. All of it. You have to be responsible. You have to be responsible in your rhetoric. You have to be responsible in your statements. You have to be responsible in your deeds. That shouldn't be too much to ask for people who ask to, for us to give them responsibility. This is the backbone of democracy, and all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. Um, well, Gabe, a week ago today, Paul Pelosi was attacked by a hammer-wielding individual who believed all of the election denier conspiracy theories. Someone was hurt. And I'm wondering how you look upon that now as all of these conspiracies continue to proliferate and you and, and, and the people who work with you and in the county election offices have to combat this as the new election looms next Tuesday. It's one of those things where you don't want to be in an I told you so kind of mode. You, you hope you're wrong. But even going back to January 6th, people died there. Um, Paul Pelosi was attacked. I mean, but the problem we have with weaponizing all these things and spinning people up, and I said this to Politico day before yesterday, my big fear in this election, you know, the FBI and GBI, they keep an eye on the groups. They watch the Oath Keepers. They see these guys. Is there some crazy, out of his mind, lone wolf out there that no one knows and no one sees who will do something? And I said it then, I say it now. Everybody has to be responsible in their rhetoric and responsible in their actions. And I, I will admit, I'm, Georgia, for whatever reason, I mean, we, Trump came and endorsed a bunch of people here, and almost all of them lost in the primary. We're not Arizona. We don't have guys with guns hanging out in body armor watching drop boxes. We, I don't want to say we're saner or what. I, it's, it's frustrating. It's something we have to deal with. And at some point, grown-ups have to de-escalate this thing. And the main thing that Secretary Rasberger says, when you lose, take your loss and move on and fight in two years. That's what we used to do in this country. That's the responsible thing to do. And in the primary, there was two particular candidates and campaigns that we called and said, look, you have a right to challenge this, but you're better for America and better for Georgia if you just conceded, and they both did. So there's an ability to do that. We have real leaders in this country who can do that, but we've got to make it – the incentives are so wrong. The incentives right now is I can claim a stolen election or a voter suppression, and I can raise hundreds of millions of dollars to be the leader of my party. Somebody has to say, you got to knock that crap out. So that's kind of where we're at, but we're just one little office, and we're you know a few thousand people in Georgia. But we're trying to set an example as best we can. Uh, Jim, one last quick question. Uh, yeah, Gabe, Gabe um, how has your life changed since uh, that day at the state capitol? I got married. Um, <laughs> okay, so one, person, oh, well. so, so one person endorsed you, yes, but otherwise. <laughs> um, it's, I, I'll admit, it's still... I go to the gro- I go to all these the other day, and like two people stopped to thank me. Uh, it's still a, it's not it's not normal. Nobody should know who I am. It's but it also puts kind of a heavy responsibility on my shoulders. Sometimes I feel like I just try to be transparent and do my job, and it's tough in some ways because you feel that responsibility, and you're like people look to you. Can you fix it? Can you fix it? I'm like we're doing our best, man, but we're a country of 300 million people. And guess what? We're people, which means we're fallen and we are broken. And there's got to be some ways to get to this. And I guess my own frustration is we have Biden on one side and, and Trump on the other. These guys are in their 70s. Can we get somebody who maybe has some other ideas and hasn't been around forever <laughs> try, try to do some new things in the country and maybe get some inspiration as opposed to fear and anger, which is what everybody seems to, to trade in now? Gabe Sterling, uh, thank you for uh, those final words, and thank you for spending time with us today. I know how busy it's going to be for you starting early next week, and, and, and really is already. So we really appreciate your being with us today, and we look forward to next Tuesday night when we'll start getting information from you and all the counties around the state about how this election is turning out. Thank you for being here, Gabe. Thanks, Bill. And tell everybody, make a plan to vote. All your listeners are the Bettys and Bobs in neighborhoods. Tell them to tell their friends to make a plan to vote and get out and vote today or Tuesday. It's important. We've been doing that for a couple of weeks now, Gabe, but you're absolutely right. Let's get to a break. Thank Gabe Sterling, and we'll be back with Matt and Jim to talk about the headlines in politics today. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. 
Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Matthew Brown, democracy reporter for The Washington Post, and our good friend Jim Galloway, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, join me as we continue our conversation uh, today. Very quickly, Jim, um, I, we always, it's interesting, when Gabe Sterling talks about the inte- integrity of elections, when he talks about the importance of honoring the process um, of uh, of of getting rid of the notion uh, that elections are rigged and biased, he, he makes points that I think all of us agree on. We can't forget the fact that he's also a Republican, so his views on SB 202 may not square with what other people feel about 202. No, but 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 he did he he did uh, concede that there were many parts of 202 that were were indeed uh, uh, just uh, political fodder that uh, was one side yeah. gigging the other. Uh, did, he didn't yeah. say it in quite uh, those terms, but uh, but but that was that that is implied. Matthew Brown, in this past week, before we talk about some of the headlines of today, um, when we think about how Georgia was has been the center of so much of the uh, conversation among the election deniers as the as ground zero for for them, um, we've learned, and you wrote about it in the Post, that Georgia was at the center center of another conspiracy theory. Um, John Eastman, lawyer for. Donald Trump, who we now know um, from the January 6th committee hearings, was sort of overseeing this uh, uh, plan to uh, uh, name alternate slates, fake electors, who would go on January 6th and and vote instead for uh, 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 Trump over Biden. It turns out those lawyers had a scheme that they hoped they could bring a case that would be heard by Clarence Thomas who would, uh, as the Supreme Court justice overseeing matters in Georgia, help them overturn the election results here. Explain that a little better than I just did. But definitely, I think you did it well. But I think it's important to note that, that the Trump campaign at the time in twenty at this time in um, December twenty twenty was trying to do a whole slew of legal arguments in Georgia in in every court that they could possibly find to say that the election in Georgia had was somehow fraudulent or that there was um, some issues with it. And they and they went so far. Our reporting now shows to even convince Trump to sign some documents that they believed he might have legal liability in because he signed it, knowingly knowing that the claims in the documents were not correct. So this this is an um, issue that now that we know that not just what their um, legal strategies were in public in the courts, but behind the scenes, we now have emails that show that they were that Trump's legal team was was knowingly thinking, how can we get the best um, legal support here? And and the person who that who they came that to was a son of Georgia, Clarence Thomas. Yeah, and and and, and reminding us once again uh, of the way in which many people now see the Supreme Court as politicized, and Clarence Thomas as being uh, in in the forefront of of some of that. Whether it's completely true or not, certainly. Uh, those attorneys for Trump uh, thought they would be able to make an argument with him. Um, Jim, let's talk about the big news that broke this morning, just a few days before Election Day. I would put it in the category two ways of what goes around comes around and sore loser. Kwanzaa Hall, longtime Democrat, former city councilman, um, ran for mayor of Atlanta. He was the top vote getter in the Democratic uh, uh, contest for lieutenant governor. Uh, he en- eventually lost to Charlie Bailey. Uh, but today, he endorsed uh, Burt Jones, the Republican for lieutenant governor, and, uh, and Brian Kemp. Um, when I say what goes around comes around, you know what I'm talking about, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Stacey Abrams endorsed Charlie Bailey in in in, in that primary runoff. Uh, uh, Kwanzaa, Kwanzaa Hall got 30 percent of the vote. Charlie got 18 uh, percent. Uh, so there there was a no, notable notable difference. But one suspects that as as often happens, uh, you know, behind the scenes in in, in Georgia Democratic Party, is that you have some you have some thinking going on about uh, uh, the diversity of the, the the slate as a whole. 
uh, and and that might have factored here. I, I will tell you what the thing that puzzles me the most about this is is that uh, Kwanzaa Hall ran a, a, a pretty strong race for uh, for for mayor uh, 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 a, a few years ago, and so far as I know, Bert Jones has not given up uh, his sponsorship of uh, the, the the effort to to split off Buckhead from the city of Atlanta. Which would be a, a just a, just a devastating move for for the city itself, and I'm 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 the implications of that I think are are are, are rather puzzling. Um, it, it well, it'll be interesting, Matt. We we have no way of knowing. I mean, he he was the top vote getter, we should say, in that race. So Kwanzaa Hall does have some sway. We also know that Stacey Abrams has made it quite clear she believes that the votes, particularly of black men, are crucial to her chances of winning the governor's race. It's hard to tell whether Kwanzaa Hall, a black man himself, could sway some voters, but it's interesting to at least think about with the election looming. No, definitely. And and Kwanzaa is from the exact type of community in Atlanta that that Stacey needs to see have a very, very large turnout on Election Day. Should she um, should she um, wish to to win election just because it has been a Democratic leaning stronghold for such a long time. So so it's interesting to see that right in the run up to to on the final day of voting that we of early voting that we see Kwanzaa coming out with this with this statement and everything. And I I think it does show a little bit that um, the longtime Atlanta establishment that, that Kwanzaa Hall has been a part of for a long time has not always been um, the biggest fans of Stacey Abrams, and I think that after the snubbing that that he saw that he saw over the summer when she endorsed his Democratic rival, he might have said, "You know what? I'm going to throw my hat in the ring," as he said with someone who's quote proven to get results in everything, which which um, you reasonably can disagree over Brian Kemp's record, but that that is something that a lot of people who backed Kemp have, have said the cycle. Uh, Jim, we also should point out that speaking of uh, election deniers. Uh, Bert Jones was a part of the fake elector slate uh, that was sent to the National Archives uh, 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 and which is now under investigation. Bert Jones himself at one point was a target of Fonnie Willis's special grand jury. Um, it was only but it was only the grace of Judge Robert McBurney who said that the fact that that during the primary Fonnie Willis had been a host of a camp of a, a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey and therefore had a conflict of interest that Burt Jones escaped being a target, at least for the time being, and is able to run free of that cloud hanging over his head. Right, which is which is which has made it uh, much easier for 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 people like like Hall to to endorse him uh, to, to to for for Brian Kemp to wrap his arms around him, uh, and and to, to 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 boost the slate as a whole. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's not it's. Uh, it, his his involvement, as you point out, it could uh, it could resurface. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he made, if you'll recall, he made that flight to D.C. on January five for dinner with 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 Mike Pence. He carried with him not into the dinner, but uh, to to D.C. a letter from uh, from Georgia state senators. They they said saying that they were they they would they would uh, support Mike Pence if he decided to to delay certification on on January sixth. Um, all right. Well, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that race uh, plays out because uh, the most recent Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll uh, has Burt Jones leading uh, by a, a substantial uh, margin over Charlie Bailey. Uh, as, as I always say, polls are snapshots, not predictors, so we're going to wait till election night to find out how that race turns out. Um, Matt, you you know, it's it, you're spending... Your time, you've got a lot of stories that you cover, but certainly you've been watching the Georgia elections unfold and the Senate race is uh, uh, crucial right now. We now know that the Georgia contest between uh, Raphael Warnock uh, and Herschel Walker is the single most expensive race in the country. Uh, Warnock has raised $115 million and uh, Walker $37 million dollars. That takes us through, I think, mid-October, more money still uh, coming in. Um, and, and one of the things that's interesting about this is, I, I mentioned this on the air yesterday, Rick Dent, who watches election spending closely, uh, sent me a note saying that this week, Raphael Warnock has got $5.9 million uh, uh, of commercial time 
running in the state. Um, and Rick said when he sent that note, that used to be the entire budget for a whole campaign for the United States Senate. Matt, what do you make of these astonishing figures? Right. Well, I think, you know, it's an increasingly relatively expensive media market in Atlanta meeting up with possibly the most competitive um, Senate election in the most politically inelastic state in the country. So, so Georgia is a newly minted battleground, and it takes a lot of money to move battlegrounds here, especially in a state where because the electorate is so closely divided and because you can only move such a small, small sliver of voters, that means that when it really comes down to it, you're going to have to spend like every single um, dollar that you can to get into people's YouTube algorithms to get onto screen to every single screen that they can possibly look at to make sure that your message is getting out there and and, and for anyone who's in Georgia right now yeah, that's obvious it's obviously the case that, that everybody in the country um, not just the campaigns themselves but also um, all types of PACs from um, left right and center are trying to get people to um, hear certain messages about these two candidates um, especially because it's going to probably determine the balance of power in Washington. Um, Matt, what are you looking for from these two in the last days of the campaign? The, the, the closing messages that we're going to hear, are they going to be positive messages? Or are they mostly on the stump going to be on the attack? We know that Raphael Warnock on the stump has picked up his attacks on Herschel Walker. Um, but Walker has been uh, uh, attacking uh, Warnock throughout his uh, campaign as he travels around the state. What do you see as the closing for both of these candidates? Yeah, Walker's been unsparing through this entire campaign of attacking um, Warnock on um, a host of a host of issues, and has really been in a lot of ways. I think at this point, trying to really pull the conservative base back to him and really rally that base um, to motivate him. I think that what is going to be interesting and important now for for Walker and Republicans all up and down the ballot here in Georgia is trying to convince voters who are more centrist and more moderate and more in the middle that they can be trusted with power as well. Warnock has, has as you said, been running a much more positive campaign and has not been trying to get into the mud with a lot of people um, for the most part through this. And he's been leaving that to a lot of his surrogates and, and outside groups who who have been doing a lot of the attacks on Walker specifically, for instance. That's changed a bit as the, as the um, you know, weeks have um, winded down here and where he started saying things like Herschel Walker's unfit and, and doesn't have and, and isn't qualified for this office and everything. I, I think his, his goal is to also rally his base, but, but very much more specifically hold on to a lot of those independent voters who you saw gravitated towards Warnock or who just, I guess, more accurately maybe ran away from Walker over the summer and early fall. And, and it's going to be important for, for either of these candidates to make sure that, that people believe that they can be trusted with power in Washington and, and showing that you can have an affirmative message is going to be the key to that. Jim? Yeah, uh, I, I know we've, we've made some, some uh, uh, readings on, on the fact that Donald Trump is not campaigning here as, a, as, a, as, as uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, we're, we're assuming that that's a, a, a nod to the, the need for, for Republicans to, to hang on to keep or persuade those those middle of the road voters the 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 the, the suburban female vote if, if you will uh, I'd also note that while Herschel Walker did show up with Marjorie Taylor Greene in North Georgia last week she's uh, you're not you're not seeing her in, in in the suburbs of Atlanta right now uh, she is she is she is elsewhere elsewhere in the country campaigning uh, and as far as money goes, the, the 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 problem the problem we've got here is is uh, uh, and we can we can get to it in, in, in I guess in a second maybe in the, in the last portion of the show is you've got yes you do have to spend every dime you got to move those voters but you have to have you have to have cash ready for November 9th, the runoff. Yes, for the potential runoff, neither candidate in any of the polls is over 50%. Let's, as Jim has already alluded to, get to our final break of the show, back with more on Political Rewind. Quick programming note um, uh, about next week. Um, Because votes will still be coming in, on, uh, we think, overnight Tuesday night and well into Wednesday. Um, we're going to do a couple of live shows on Tuesday, on, 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 at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. All of, all of you who listen to the show regularly know we're live at 9 in the morning and, and rerun the show at 2. But next Tuesday, on Election Day, we will do a live show at both 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. And then Wednesday, even more importantly, 
we'll do a live show at two so we can update you on crucial races where the outcome of the election may still be unknown. We just talked about the Senate race, which could be headed to a runoff, so they'll still be counting votes. So we hope you'll join us for both of our shows, particularly on Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday afternoon at uh, two o'clock, so we can keep you as well informed and as up to the minute on election returns as possible. Um, Jim Galloway, you can uh, talk about the subject you broached before the break, but I also want to add to something, uh, to the Herschel Walker uh, story, uh, something interesting. I just opened the jolt, and it turns out that that while state Republicans are planning on having a unity rally on on Monday night to close out the election, um, it's not clear whether Herschel Walker is going to be there. Um, The jolt says one Walker confident Confidant told us not to expect him to participate. Um, they have Kemp and Walker haven't campaigned together. Um, you would think that uh, Walker might want to have uh, Brian Kemp's uh, help in some way as he moves towards the final stages of the race. It's interesting. We don't know what's happening. The dynamic between those two right now. No, and 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 it, it'll get more interesting if 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 Walker makes it into a runoff. Uh, because at that point, you know, if if Kemp uh, if if Kemp does does win outright on Tuesday, well, he's 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 he would have a big role uh, to play in in making sure that uh, Republicans uh, win the Senate. You know what, Matt? It's interesting because we could imagine Brian Kemp has run a very disciplined campaign. Obviously, he has tried to avoid controversial subjects like Herschel Walker's past record of abusing women. Um, he certainly tries to avoid talking about Donald Trump, um, but it's it, it looks like Herschel Walker, who is, has an allegiance to Donald Trump, may have his own reasons for wanting to stay away from a rally like that. Again, just a fascinating dynamic between those two. Right, absolutely. And, and we know from reporting at The Washington Post that, that Walker's campaign actually did ask Trump to not campaign in Georgia because they were afraid that it would depress um, Republican votes if, if Trump did show up here. But more importantly, it would also probably um, just cause a lot more fractures in the party, as you said, because Trump is the um, – one of the most critical, one of one of the most critical people of Brian Kemp for not going along with his, um, Trump's plot mm-hmm. to overturn the 2020 election and everything. So, so that is something that that as Herschel Walker for most of the campaign also did echo Trump's conspiracy theories about the 2020 election, and because of that. Now that he's now that he's downplayed some of that past and everything, it is going to be an interesting question of of whether or not. Kemp, who has um, studiously avoided a lot of that um, and tried to have, as, as you said, in this unity rally, just another show of it, to try and bring the Republican ticket together. But but this, I think, is one example of showing that there are still deep fissures inside the Georgia Republican Party that have been papered over because of the passage of SB202 and things that have made it so that, well, we can point to certain conservative wins that, that Kemp and others have brought us. But I, I do think that at some point there's going to be a reckoning in the in the conservative movement in this state, and it's going to be very interesting to see which side of that um, on, on the, the Kemp side um, and the I guess the Trumpian wing is, is, is going to win out there. All right, Matt and Jim. I've got something new to bring to the table right now. If there are runoffs uh, after <laughs> Tuesday, if if we have a runoff in the Senate race, if we have a runoff in the governor's race, anything is possible. Um, we are now learning from Axios first. CNN has uh, weighed in on this as well, that Donald Trump is looking at announcing his candidacy for 2024 sometime uh, before Thanksgiving. Uh, Matt, I'll start with you. Uh, Donald Trump, all of a sudden becoming a major player, if he does go forward with that, could have an impact on how a runoff goes. Yeah, and just looking at the Senate race, which is it seems like the race for the if polling is correct is going to be the most likely to go to a runoff right now. Be the, Herschel Walker has benefited a lot from nationalizing this race in ways and saying, well, it's not about me. It's not about my scandals. Don't focus on um, my policy positions even. Just focus on Republican control of the Senate. And that's what, when I talk to voters, what a lot of people are saying, that that's the reason why they might have issues with him, but this is why. But this is why they're going to back him. If Trump uh, announces, I think that would renationalize the race in a way that would not be favorable to people, to um candidates like Herschel Walker, because he's not a popular figure here in Georgia and is not someone who, especially those, those moderate swing voters who, who backed Biden in 2020 in, in such large numbers, would not 
likely want to see back on the scene. So reminding people that you are um, Trump's hand-picked candidate here in Georgia, I don't think would be a good thing for Herschel Walker, likely. But it, we're going to have to see how that is going to play out after in a potential runoff going on. Jim, the, Jim, the New York Times just uh, moved the same story. They're now reporting that Trump is going to announce uh, shortly after the midterm. Right. And what you, what you have to remember is that is, is in 2020, uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff won their Senate races in large part because Donald Trump campaigned in Georgia and, and, and dampened the Republican vote in, specifically in North Georgia. Republicans and and this is uh, the this is the political most political portion of SB two hundred two. Republicans uh, wanted to fix that because they because they, they had shifted uh, from a a, a four week pr- uh, runoff to a nine week runoff, which allowed Democrats to raise money and and rally voters who don't usually vote in a runoff. Uh, this could yeah. uh, it was to, so any runoff would be December six, and usually. Republicans, older voters, they're the ones who are going to be voting right after Thanksgiving. A Donald Trump entry would would change that dynamic very much, I think. Jim, we're almost out of time. Um, we've, we focused on the Senate race, and um, you both gave us uh, your views on what happens in the final days as the two candidates make their last arguments. But Jim, uh, what are you looking for in the Abrams-Kemp uh, campaign? What does Stacey Abrams have to do in these final days to uh, try to move as close as possible to Brian Kemp, maybe force a runoff, maybe win outright. Who knows? Right, right, right. What she has to do is she has to prove the polls wrong. She has to she has to prove that that the, the voting pool that's out there that's that's continuing to shape the, the 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 results in Georgia is is not what pollsters assumed that it was going to be. That it's going to have far more women, going to have far more uh, black men in 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 the mix. Um, Matt, uh, I think what, what uh, Jim says is important. The Abrams campaign is fighting, the headwinds they're fighting are all of these polls, which suggest that uh, she's uh, far behind Brian Kemp or significantly behind him. We're not reporting any more polls starting today because it's next <laughs> Tuesday at this point that matters. But that is that perception does damage her to some extent, Matt. Right, and I think that the that um, all campaigns actually in the state right now would say that what matters is is the poll that's going to happen on, on election day. And I think that because we have so much data on who's already voted here, you know, more than 2.2 million people in Georgia, I think it's just going to be important to see what this election is going to tell us about the politics of Georgia in terms of what does turnout what does turnout mean and what is the the winning coalition here? Is it is it a coalition where, as Stacey Abrams says, you can turn out? Um, your base and transform the electorate with um, low propensity, or as, as they as they say, high opportunity voters who are going to have an effect, who are going to be more amenable to Stacey Abrams' policy positions, and especially communities of color, um, more more diverse um, communities with more progressive values. Or is it going to be um, a game of, as Brian Kemp believes, convincing a lot of more moderate um, swing voters in Georgia's very very large suburbs around Metro Atlanta that they should come back to him because he's a he's a strong conservative steward of the state. Matthew Brown, Washington Post democracy reporter. Thank you for a great way to summarize what we're going to be looking for in the days ahead. And Jim Galloway, as always, we're grateful to you for being with us for today's political reel. Well, we're really out of time. Um, We'll be back with you on Monday with another live show, and we'll be with you throughout next week as the election uh, turns to vote counting and results. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Go out and cast your vote today if you can. Get a flu shot and maybe a COVID booster, too. Is that enough to ask you to do? I hope not. Take care, everybody.